Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, you will discover there some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. We're in the midst of another warning passage, the second warning passage that we come across in this book. Some of these Hebrew Christians are for various reasons that we'll not go into again, waffling in their faith. They are somewhat reminiscent of that generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, many of whom were found in the wilderness to be unbelieving. The writer, as we will find out later, doesn't believe that is really the case with this generation, but nevertheless, these warnings are a tool of God to touch the heart of God's people and produce what he prescribes. So they have their effect. So he warns them. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, quoting from Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Don't go there. That's where your fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, the Lord says, I was angry with this generation. I said, they do always go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. He's talking about the rest of salvation. Therefore, this writer says, Brethren, you don't want to be like those people. You beware, lest there should be in any one of you, like was in that generation, an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice how he juxtaposes evil. Unbelief is not just an intellectual thing, it's a moral thing. When people are unbelieving, they love darkness. And they would manifest their unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, a God whom they had professed to trust in Christ. So the author applies the appeal of the Holy Spirit to a previous generation of Israelites to this generation. This generation claims to have heard God's voice in Jesus Christ and followed him. Now, as I said, they are showing signs of reneging on their faith. The author, as we'll find out later, does not really think they're going to go there, but he's trying to do his part to make sure they don't. So we have this second sober warning passage. He warns them not to let history repeat itself in their own unbelieving response to the voice of God. Right now, he sees a window of opportunity remaining open. That's what he means by today. While you can still hear, petty the person for whom God's call, as we said at the end of the last program, has to be called yesterday. 
many of those. God's invitation has come and gone, forever withdrawn, and they can never hear and they will never see. You don't want to go there, he warns. So take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you, as there was in that generation to whom the Lord spoke in Psalm 95, an evil, unbelieving heart, in falling away from the living God. The author is telling us by implication that in all of us, though redeemed, there is still this flesh with its downward anti-God gravity, and which, if we are not vigilant, we are susceptible to deception and creeping unbelief that encroaches upon faith like bad ivy. The author warns, because it is the function of the Word of God to prompt what it prescribes, he issues this warning. And if these Hebrew Christians are for real, these warnings will have their intended effect and will be God's way of keeping in the faith those whom he has elected in Christ to it. Works that way still today. Never hesitate to warn people. Some people say, well, you might shake up their security. No, not of a believer. When Peter comes along and says, make your calling and election sure, I would say the same to others. Make your calling and election sure you have something to prove. The Word of God works like that. It warns us. It gigs us once in a while. And if we have a genuine faith, it'll have its effect. And if our faith is not genuine, things will go the other way. This, incidentally, brings up an important point of practical application. Let me, with the help of this text and much of what follows in this epistle, start right now to help debunk one huge urban myth of the modern ministry. Where in God's Word and from the precedence of the prophets and the apostles or even the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, where do we find any support or validation for the myth that motivational appeals to fear and or guilt as incentives for spiritual or moral amendment are somehow unworthy, as though they were unbiblical, sub-Christian, and contrary to God's grace. You don't see that here, do you? Now, before I say more, let me hasten to insert here that it is certainly true that the ideal motive for all godly responses to the Lord is appreciation of His grace and a desire to return His love in whatever ways are pleasing to Him. That said... Let it be added that the Scriptures from beginning to end do not hesitate to appeal also to fear and to guilt as proper motives for us to amend our ways. This should not surprise us, as such motives or appeals are as normal in human relations as divine. Sometimes, for example, children or youth lack sufficient maturity to be actuated as we would hope to do what is wise or right by simple appeal to their love for us, their parents, though in fact they do love their folks. So for their safety and the well-being of all concerns, our appeals to fear and or guilt may be added to augment the other, and the other may not be of sufficient force alone. Both of those motives are anchored in reverence for God's holiness and his power to judge, and this God does not despise, nor should we. Again, it's always best if we do what's pleasing to God simply because he is good and we love him. But God is also pleased if men and women do what is right and wise, because they know he's holy, and he holds his servants accountable, and they respect the warning, be sure your sin will find you out. I would dearly love it if a son or daughter of mine did what I wanted and expected of them simply because they love me, so much that they would never wish to disappoint me. That'd be great. But I would also be pleased if they did what I wanted and expected of them, not purely by force of their love for me, but they did it also because they respected me, they respected their accountability so much, that they took me seriously enough to conform to my desires. 
It would not bother me to make them feel guilty when they were guilty, for the fact is they ought to feel guilty. Nor would it bother me to appeal to fear when they were out of line, for in fact, if they continue in that path, they'd have every reason to be fearful that I would impose upon them exactly the consequences I promised. Another point. In this crazy, over-psychologized culture, we have been brainwashed with the notion that guilt feelings are a bad thing. That's another urban myth. God has put the conscience in place as one monitor of the moral quality of our actions. The conscience registers with guilt. When we are outside the lines, just as a Richter scale measures earthquake activity with needle movements, guilt feelings are like feelings of pain. Not happy feelings, but very necessary and invaluable to our well-being. And that they tell us when we are doing something injurious to our soul or body. And to bring guilt to bear where real guilt is being repressed, that's a good thing. It's not a good feeling. But it's a healthful exercise, because if allowed to be repressed, the wrong that we're doing will be spiritually, psychologically, physically, and socially destructive, unless guilt feelings are aroused in sufficient, overwhelming force to bring about repentance. A wife whose love for her husband was not sufficient incentive to harness her emotional insecurities that led to an extramarital affair will not be reined in by simply reminding her of her spouse's great sacrificial love for her. That incentive to repent and refrain from future infidelities needs augmentation. Augmentation of great guilt and fear of potential consequences, both near and further down the range. Well, so it is in the spiritual life also. How anyone who reads the Bible could ever think that the prophets and apostles appeal only to the love motive. It's beyond me. Sometimes I wonder if people read their Bibles at all. But that perhaps explains in part why it is, in the average church, one almost never sees anymore any evidence of holy conviction. Let's not disarm ourselves in the ministry of the Word by capitulating to such silly myths. As we can plainly see right here, our author here in Hebrews does not hesitate to go there. So in verse 12, the first step in amendment of their wobbliness in the faith is to monitor their own spiritual condition, to beware or be fearfully vigilant lest they find themselves in an unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. An evil unbelieving heart is one that mimics the evil unbelieving disposition of their forefathers in the wilderness whom God rejected. Now, in verse 13. There's a second prescription for waffling in their midst. Mutual support in the form of encouragement and exhortation in the battle. He said, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Greek verb translated encourage also means to exhort. The two ideas are bound up with one another. Encourage one another has reference especially to mutual support in the context of local church fellowship. This admonition reminds us of the importance of not attempting to stand alone spiritually. It reminds us of the importance of not neglecting regular assembly with one another. We'll see that again in Hebrews 10.25. It reminds us of the importance of positioning ourselves on the human side of the equation for spiritual success. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. John Wesley once said, I've often quoted it, 
Christianity is a social religion. If you make it solitary, you kill it. I've encountered folk, either directly or by report, who either prideful or wounded have set about to go it alone. And I know I'm speaking to some like that at this moment. Folks, I want to tell you something. That's not God's plan for your spiritual health. Don't be too proud or too smart that you know better than God. Sooner or later, when you most need encouragement and exhortation, it won't be there for you, and you will pay the piper for that error, whatever the price happens to be. Another thing this verb calls attention to is a feature of Christian fellowship that sometimes is not always as muscular as central as it ought to be in our church bodies. I speak of the spiritual orientation of body life, strange as it sounds. The church is not a social club, folks, though it has a social dimension. The local church is a spiritual body existing to build people up in Christ, to send people out for Christ, to bring people to Christ, to build them up in Christ in a never-ending cycle. Let's keep that in mind. The design of the local church was not primarily meant to be a venue for us to socialize and enjoy the good company of one another, Though that has its value, its chief function is to provide an environment where you and I can mutually instruct, counsel, exhort, encourage, and when necessary, reprove one another, and through which we can advance the great commission of Jesus Christ. Encourage one another. You can't do that unless you're in fellowship. You can't do that unless you come together. That obviously implies the community of the local church. The net effect of body life ought always be greater stimulation to love and good works and encouragement to keep the faith and the determination to walk the walk. If your body life does not light you up that way, it means one of two things. Either it means your wood is wet, as someone has said, or it means there's no fire. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes a church is so busy with peripheral things, maybe just social things, that it's forgotten the main things. But there's no question, there's a lot of wood sitting around in our pews that's just wet. And then in lots of churches, there's just no fire. None of that is good. This exhortation reminds us that we always need to keep an eye cocked for stragglers and strugglers in the faith. We ought to be ready as the Lord gives us opportunities to step in and encourage people, exhort them to heed the voice of the Lord. For some are always drifting. Some are always at risk of falling away from Christ. Some are always in danger of fatal hardening, that is, growing callous and insensitive to the Word of God, becoming impervious to the promptings of the Spirit of God. Well, how does that happen? Notice that lest, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is tempting for various reasons, depending on the situation. Sin may seduce us by its appeal to the eyes or draw us in by promising to gratify our flesh or boosting our human pride in some way. But sin deceives us by promising us life more abundantly and giving us misery and death. Sin tricks itself up to seem more respectable than it is. It hides from us just how bad it is. Sin never tells us that the borrower is the lender's slave and that it leads to bondage. Disobedience to God, my dear friends, is always the product of deception. Thus deceived by the attractiveness or the allurements of sin, one at last so abuses the conscience that it grows numb and dumb, callous to the voice of God, and that's fatal. That's why we've got to exhort and encourage one another day after day, 
so long as the ear is there to hear, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because sin is deceitful, and it can bludgeon the conscience until we can no longer hear. So it's imperative that we seize the moment, the teachable moment, that is, while it is still today in God's timetable and His voice may still be heard. For there will come a time when that window is closed. There will come a time when His appeals so often rejected and the conscience so often bludgeoned that the ears no longer hear, the heart no longer feels, and the eyes no longer have any capacity to see. Sin and its allurements, its enticements, have so sucked us into the web of its deceptions that we come to the forks in the road. The voice of God saying, This is the way of life, and that is the way of death. And the world and the flesh of the devil weighing in, saying, Oh, no, it's just the opposite. That's the way of death, and here is the way of life. At last, we are deceived, as were Adam and Eve, and we walk away from the Lord in unbelief. Eventually, we get hardened in that position, and we find ourselves at the end of the day numbered with the unbelievers after all. So, he says, take preventive measures. Encourage one another. We exist in a community of believers. You don't want to be out there alone. You're being a fool. Some of you have to. But there are other ways. I know I've got a daughter and a son-in-law in that very position. There are other ways, and God knows how to compensate for those things. But you do need to find them. Now, this can sound as though the eternal security of the believer depends on the believer, not the Lord. But that's only because we fail here to grasp one of the means whereby the Spirit of God secures those in faith in whom He has created saving faith. And how is that, Jim? Well, it's exactly what I've mentioned before. Namely, the Holy Spirit sanctifies through the Word. Jesus said that in John 17. Sanctify them through the truth. Thy Word is truth. You see, friends, the Spirit causes this kind of advice to resonate in the hearts of those who are really His. His voice has the desired effect in the case of genuine believers. His voice produces what it prescribes in the case of genuine believers. It causes what it commands in the case of genuine believers. You see, this is all part of God's way of keeping in the faith those whom he has called in faith. So even as he addresses the faltering as sons and brethren, the Spirit, through his prophet, warns them of apostasy and its terrors. The Spirit knows such warnings will have their turnaround effect in his own, while those who are false or counterfeit brethren will skate right on into a Christless perdition. You see, if the Holy Spirit did not sustain our faith, we would surely lose it. But he does keep it. But the way he sanctifies us, that is, the way he sets us apart for God and keeps us on the team, is by the word. Sanctify them. As Jesus said in the truth, thy word is truth. John 17. In the way we listen or don't listen to the word of God, we sort ourselves out according to our kind. Faithful or faithless. Genuine or counterfeit. In the case of authentic believers, the voice of God will come through. It will have its effect, at least eventually. Isaiah 55, remember, God's word will not return into him void. And in the case of those who are false, and there are many of those, those folk will just harden. They'll go their own way, just as they did in the wilderness. Jesus said it plainly, John 10, My sheep hear my voice. And get this, they follow me. That's just the way it is. That's a spiritual axiom. So the believer is secure in Christ, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word that keeps us in the faith, causes us to rise up 
and respond to the promptings of his spirit through the word. That's how he keeps us. And he tells us to encourage one another. So in verse 14, there's a little more shock therapy for those waffling in the faith. The author will now shake the bushes and let them sort themselves out according to their kind. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. He reminds these Hebrew Christians once more that their Christian credentials are only as good as their staying power. That is, saving faith is a staying faith. For we are partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. I say again, genuine faith is a finishing faith. Faith that pulls up short of the mark is a counterfeit faith. It's a work of the flesh, not a work of the spirit. In making this point, the author appeals to that residue of spiritual earnestness that resides in the heart of all genuine disciples by adding such a condition as the proof of purchase, so to speak. The Holy Spirit in them will stir them up to prove themselves, make their calling and election sure, and to differentiate themselves from phonies who may at the end of the day abandon their profession. So again, the writer recalls the words of Psalm 95, refreshing his reader's consciousness of the exact analogy of their situation with those to whom those words were addressed in the wilderness, who later proved to be unbelieving. He underscores the urgency of getting a grip. Right now, he says, God's gracious voice may still be heard, while the window of opportunity to enter into the riches of God's grace is still open, while it is still today on God's clock and not yesterday. Yesterday's a time and opportunity past and never to return. Right now, let them not stiffen their hearts against the word. Let them listen to the voice of God that has come to them in his Son and through his apostles and obey the faith. Time and again in the course of my Christian life, I've seen scenarios similar to this played out in our churches. It takes different shapes, but perhaps the closest analogy to this is those tragic stories where people will make a profession of faith in Christ, appear for a time to be genuinely converted. They will talk the talk. They will give outward evidence temporarily of walking the walk, much as Israel did coming out of Egypt, where it is actually said they feared the Lord, that is, they worshipped him, and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, Exodus 14.31. But as these folk are tested along the way, they revert to form. When push comes to shove, they cannot bring themselves to trust God, trust His goodness, trust His power and wisdom, trust His will and His ways. Their attachment is to their desires, and their own wisdom is greater than any confidence they have in God. So, they dally with sin, it deceives them. They ignore the warnings of their conscience, they grow harder and harder, and before long, they are just a shell of their former selves. The light is gone from their faces, the old joy is no longer in evidence, no steam anymore, and at last they're impervious to the voice of God. Once seemingly sensitive to the voice of God, so ready to do His will, so anxious to be in the fellowship of God's people, now they're adrift and they are callous. Sometimes they will continue to ride it out in the church, kind of like dead marine life on the surface of the ocean. Their shell remains in the maritime environment, but their life is long gone. Lots of folks in our churches like that, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, cannot be reached any more than the Exodus generation could be reached. They just wouldn't obey because at bottom they didn't believe and trust God, didn't trust His character and His ways. Now they can't. By the way, that connection is axiomatic. Unbelief is sin, and sin, whatever form it takes, always projects some degree of unbelief. Israel's chronic disobedience in first this situation and then that went back to the same old route. 
They just couldn't find it in their hearts to trust the goodness, power, and wisdom of God on a sustained basis. We'll come back to this next time, dear friends. Thank you for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in their hands.